right, welcome to Note Up. Uh, I'm Michael Rogers, and this is the Frameworks Deep Dive. We have the authors of some frameworks. Um, I wrote a framework called TACO, T-A-K-O. We have Paolo Fregomeni, uh, who worked on a framework called Flatiron. Uh, we have Owen Barnes, who worked on a framework called SocketStream. And we have uh, Matt Ernesty, who wrote a framework called Getty, named after Getty Lee. Best bass player ever, come on. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we we tried very very hard um, to get somebody from Express, but unfortunately that didn't work. Um, we we reached out to a number of people who regularly contribute to it, and it just didn't work out to have any of them on. So we apologize. Uh, we're sponsored today by Bizzler and Clock, uh, and we'll talk about them a little more as the show goes on. But uh, first, I mean, since we didn't get anybody from Express, uh, do a few people want to talk about some some of the more positive notes about Express um, and what they think about it. Silence. <laughs> no, nobody like, does. Come on, come on. <laughs> there's, there's positive things about Express. There's lots of positive things about it. It was one of the first things out of the gate, um, really to, to be somewhat complete. Um, it's, a, it's a great framework to start with if you're looking to do something similar to um, you know, a lot of the existing frameworks that are out there. I think for um, for my part as well, I found it um, quite interesting that uh, a framework could take off without a sort of big monolithic stack, um, you know, coming sort of from a Rails background where you'd start your app and you'd have like, you'd say Rails start and it would all sort of chug along and then eventually it'd all be up and here's, you know, a different take on a framework altogether, a way of doing a much more minimalistic approach. And I thought that was really amazingly refreshing, uh, very elegant design and, um, you know, quite inspiring actually to for other framework authors out there. So so I think this is kind of interesting because, of course, um, uh, before Node came along, my uh, server-side language of choice was Ruby. And I, like, Kind of sad to admit, I haven't actually used Express for anything in production, but I did. I have used Sinatra uh, off and on. So the the uh, idea of doing something in a minimal way like that is uh, is super appealing. Uh, depending on what the app is for, depending on what you're trying to do with it. Indeed, indeed. And that's that's from the guy who has written a like a, sort of a full stack plug and play, you know, non minimalist uh, framework. Right tool for the, right tool for the job, right? Yep, indeed. Um, it's quite interesting as well that you can actually plug Express with other things as well. You can use it with other modules, um, uh, and they're sort of treated on an equal level. And I really like that as well. I think that's a really nice approach that you you, you start your app with uh, sort of Node App JS, and you know it, Express is not sort of dominating your entire application stack. Um, you know, you're able to um, treat it quite fairly with other modules at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I like about Express, honestly, because it was because it came out so early, when really none of us knew how to write Node or what idiomatic Node looked like, we were still kind of figuring it out. Um, and over time, Express has really changed, and like its APIs have changed, its implementation has changed. But it went from something that was like very, very much felt like a Ruby thing that was sort of like those ideas ported to a JavaScript thing to something that felt a lot more like Node and like JavaScript. So I like the TJ. Um, is really willing to break API and to make really good changes to drive things forward and isn't like, even with all the adoption that he has, he's not afraid to move things forward. That's actually a really interesting point. Um, I think that's 
sort of happening to a lot of the libraries, and uh, I think you're sort of seeing that as a as a as a thing in the community as a whole. Um, that's definitely happened to Jake. I initially wrote Jake as a simple port of Rake, um, and as uh, time has passed, I've added things like making the task uh, event emitters. Um, adding a lot of support for obviously for asynchrony and it's kind of interesting to see it evolving over time like that into something that's very very nodely and very very javascripty awesome all right well why don't we talk about uh, our first sponsor today uh bizler bislr.com you can go to bislr.com slash jobs to see about awesome node.js jobs that are located in beautiful sydney australia uh, they will pay all of your moving costs, and it's pretty much always sunny, and they're always drinking beer, and it's awesome. And what are some more incorrect things that we can say about Australia, you guys? Australia is awesome, man. That's what not incorrect. F- it's made, the- Australia is made out of kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have, to, we, we have a tradition of saying things that uh, don't really exist about Australia. Everything uh, is uh, always upside down, constantly. Yeah, everything moves the opposite direction, including the clocks. The 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 toilets flush in the opposite yeah. direction. Right? Yeah, like well, that's they, actually, it doesn't like the water doesn't come straight up. It just so that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, when you say opposite, do you mean like you're flushing <laughs> outward instead of inward, or what are we talking here? I, I actually have never been there, um, but I've heard all kinds of things, um, mainly from Node Up. That's where I get my education for Australia. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Melbourne was shockingly similar to the Bay Area in a lot of respects. They have all the imported pines and the uh, and the uh, um, eucalyptus, the native eucalyptus, and we've got the the flip flop of that. Uh, really, really kind of interesting uh, overlap, and a lot of like uh, hard drinking uh, uh, developer people. Is it okay to talk about hard drinking developer developer people still, or is that no? It's not, fine. A, not a thing anymore. It's, it's not a thing. People people are allowed to to, to drink alcohol if they want. People people mainly mostly do drink, um, and people that don't are fine with people drinking. There's just one guy that likes to complain. Definitely I think he don't. works at a finance uh, institution. <laughs> don't, don't want to be seen as exclusionary, you know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, moving along, uh, let's talk about Getty. <laughs> We don't want to exclude all the all the crystal meth users out there, right? <laughs> we want to be as inclusive as we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you really don't like having your teeth, we're we're <laughs> cool. You. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, let's talk about Getty a bit, Matt. Do you want to talk about uh, why you wrote Getty and uh, what makes it a little different? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, initially, I wrote it uh, just for fun. It was uh, kind of a way of uh, of uh, kicking the tires on Node, and this um, and was had, a long time ago. I mean, this is over two years ago now. It's been around for a while, um, and it's one of those things. Um, initially, I just started off uh, writing sort of a RESTful router. Um, you know how these things go. You start off writing something small, and it just kind of uh, takes on a life of its own. Um, so I was a big fan of the uh, the old Ruby um, framework called Merb, that was an early competitor to Rails. That made uh, writing RESTful APIs super super uh, simple. It was a very lightweight framework, but it was still sort of in the uh, Railsy style. Um, and nothing like that at the time existed in the Node world. So I figured I would write something that did simple RESTful routes and content negotiation. 
um, and it kind of uh, sprouted from there. So, so V1 was sort of uh, writing a framework for the sort of uh, for the sake of writing a framework, and then the recent like big uh, V2 rev was coming from sort of the opposite direction. We uh, we started using Node at Yammer for doing file and image uploads. Um, our file and image upload service is still uh, this Node-based, uh, Getty-based service. Um, and we re- initially wrote it with a bunch of the pieces parts out of Getty, but not really in any structured way. So having like written a framework for the sake of writing, you know, pieces of a framework and just enjoying that, and then actually having to write uh, production uh, a production sort of large scale uh, Node service without the benefit of a framework. Um, eventually, the two the two things kind of merged together, and uh, that's Getty. I guess we're on v zero three now. So, uh, ra- routing is pretty complex thing to do. Yeah. Um, what, what were some of the problems that you guys found when you were initially putting together like a router? Um, well, actually, it's it's uh, kind of unfortunate. The guy that wrote the current router. Um, he, it's kind of one of these weird open sourcey things. I I did a first pass at a regular expression router. Um, the easy part was actually the API because I knew what I wanted the API to look like. I wanted it to look some look like something familiar to a Rails or or Merb uh, person. Um, and at some point, um, this guy, um, Karen. Uh, I wish I could think of his uh, last name off the top of my head. Showed up sort of apropos of nothing and rewrote the entire thing, complete with a a massive uh, battery of of uh, exhaustive tests for the thing, um, and then sort of disappeared back into the woodwork. Right. Um, so there really wasn't that much hard about it. This guy literally took like two weeks, I guess, uh, porting the the Merb, the old, the original Merb uh, regular expression router, uh, to JS. And probably the biggest problem there was going through and stripping out all the Rubyisms and uh, uh, in his code and making it a little more sort of idiomatically, either JavaScript or, or or me JavaScript, if that makes sense. I guess maybe what one tiny problem would be uh, satisfying all the pedants, right? The pedantic. Uh, Oh, what is the the uh, the the HTTP error code for? Um, you're using the wrong verb. Like the route exists, but you're using the wrong verb, right? So it's deciding sort of where when it's done. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so Check when? It, I wish I could remember what error code that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you you mentioned that uh, you wrote it sort of like as a one-off to learn things. Um, and then there was a big push to sort of use it um, at Yammer. Um, are there any particular use cases that you feel like it's really strong in um, because you've had to deal with them at Yammer so much? Um, well, it's interesting. We're using it for file and image uploads, which is, uh, which is not your sort of traditional RESTful uh, application. Um, but it's intended to provide sort of a structured way of building a Node app, a very plug-and-playable Structured way of building a node apps, so so it's so it's sort of twofold. It makes it very very easy to create an app scaffold so that you have a working app right out of the gate with process management, with you know clustering, unified logging, all the stuff that you would want in a production app. But it also provides sort of the application a very similar uh, approach to to Rails as far as the no, no, sort of already knowing where things go in your app. Um, I've heard uh, Daniel um, Erickson, who's another, who's the other like uh, a, a big uh, Getty uh, contributor, has said he's worked on multiple sort of large scale express apps, 
and that Express is great as far as it goes, but the, the problem sort of becomes everyone then has their take on Express or on an, the structure of an Express app. Um, and I know that there are other there are other uh, people or, or there are other ways to solve the problem. You know, pl- plugging together other things with uh, with Express in a structured way, sort of uh, Express app generators. Uh, but none of that's core to, core to Express. So so it solves the problem of getting everyone on the same page um, and sort of setting everyone's expectations for where things go in the application. You're not you know learning this guy's take on an, on an Express app or this particular company's you know new you know, homegrown way of uh, of organizing the the application code, and you can you can get right into the process of just building the actual app and writing the uh, the the logic for your app. So some of that maybe speaks a little bit to the evolu- evolution of the Node community as a whole as well. Uh, there, I think that the the population the of the community is still fairly heavily skewed toward the DIY type crowd. So people who really enjoy getting nutsy boltsy with uh, the code that they're writing, um, but I think if uh, we want Node to grow and develop uh, as a community and as an ecosystem, uh, and I'm assuming that's what we want, uh, the 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 community has to has to change. The quality of the, or the the character of the community has to change and be a little more welcoming for people who are more interested in just getting shit done. Um, and that yeah. also means that probably the types of code that people are writing are going to be changing too. So that yeah, was... I, I, uh, yeah, sorry, um, Matthew, yeah, I totally agree with that point, actually. It's always been a, a big issue for me as well. That um, I think, you know, at the moment, the Node community is, is full of sort of early adopter types who do like, you know, going around plugging and playing different modules and, you know, figuring out which ones work together and which versions work together. Um, and But there's also so many people out there who are still stuck in rails land who just want to get stuff done and you know they don't care whether their css directory is called style sheets or css or anything like that but you know if particularly if you work in a big agency when you're dealing with different types of apps all day long and you're constantly context switching between them it is really quite nice to have something in a predefined structure and know straight away where to go and find something yeah so uh jsconf uh one of the uh Ongoing activities was this boot to gecko phone and building an app for that. So a, a bunch of a bunch of the Yammer guys sat down and, and uh, decided that they were going to build an app. I actually think it's still up and running. Uh, they built geeksaround.me, right? So the idea was uh, checking uh, using the Foursquare and GitHub APIs to find guys around you, like local in your like general vicinity, who happen to have uh, GitHub profiles. And I think it probably took them on the order of like two hours to build this app um, because they just grabbed Getty, you know, generated an app scaffold, and then were able to focus on building the, you know, the piece of the app that was interesting to them, not, you know, building the same crap over and over again, you know, logging and process management and all the stuff that you need for a production app. Yeah, I agree. what, what, What necessarily differentiates like having all that stuff tied together versus having a variety of modules for you to be able to choose from to put together what you need? Um, well, the, the difference is uh, the, what you just said. Having modules to choose from, um, one, one, of, one of the very interesting questions um, that I got as a GitHub issue uh, on Getty fairly recently was someone asking about testing. 
Um, and I'm very, very a framework agnostic when it comes to testing. Um, Michael, I think you, you said before that you and I will have a yearly argument about a couple of different things and like you'll be right about one thing and I'll be right about one thing. And the thing that you were right about was minimalist sort of testing. I just prefer plain old assert. Um, and this guy's issue was, you know, you generate this app, but there's no test directory and there's no preferred test framework for it. So like, what do I do for testing? Um, and if you're new to Node, you may not want, you know, cho choice is a good thing if you know sort of out of what and you're plugged into the community and you have an idea, you know, you may even personally know the author of like the, of these, these different modules and you may have an idea, you know, what you want to choose. If you're new to Node, um, then, then choice becomes, you know, sort of a, you know, an albatross around your neck. Uh, a lot of guys just want to, you know, fire something up and get started playing around and not have to choose. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I think so. What you're saying is that for for people who are who are new to using um, Node may want to have a framework that uh, puts everything together for you, kind of like a convention or a con, uh, configuration over convention type of thing. And, and and that's that's been really successful actually, and could be hugely beneficial to Node. Like if we look at like the success of Rails, like you know, convention or configuration over convention has been really successful. I, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 convention over configuration, meaning right, like, right. <laughs> yeah, you just you can you can Cock. have an assumption about what's in the app. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's useful, and I think I mean it's everything is a, is a balancing act. Everything is a choice. So having a having a framework that is having a, like an ostensible framework that is like a a, a, a loose collection of modules, but but attempting to be sort of plugged together in a structured way, um, that can give you some benefits in that they're decoupled. If you, if you have a, a preference that's not uh, the, the first choice of the framework, it's fairly easy to plug something else in. Um, but you do, you do have, uh, you know, you, you do, you do have, you, you do have to put, put the onus of choice on the end users. And you may also end up in a situation where lower level APIs are bubbling up, uh, in a weird or inappropriate way, or the pieces don't play nicely together. So with a with you know what people like people often uh, pick the sort of prejudicial term, the monolithic framework, right? Um, the the pieces are almost guaranteed to work together. So so none of us complain about the fact that you know our 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 Mac Macintosh uh, operating systems, everything works together seamlessly. Like pe that's not something people generally complain about you don't see people complaining about the monolithic you know OS 10 you know tyranny right um, that's because it's been so well designed I mean I guess you may see Linux people coming over and complaining about not being able to do that one thing like I, I think it's a really good analog, whatever but actually I think it's a really great analog because um, you know Macs are very geared towards end users beginners um, or you know people who want something out of the box that just works mm -hmm. without really doing a lot with it and conversely, there you know there is something on the other side of that argument, which is let's say that you are you know, you're building a very much more complicated system, and you need to to do some some sort of decomposition of how things came when they were out of the box. Um, yes. So it seems like seems like maybe there there's two options that we're really looking for, um, like as far as frameworks go. 
Does, yeah, does that make sense? A- absolutely. I, I, I agree with you completely. So I, I've said before, the nice thing about Linux is that you can configure everything, but the bad thing is that you have to configure everything. And the nice thing about the Mac is that you don't have to configure anything, but the bad thing is that you can't, even if you want to. Um, so it, in some respects, it may be just sort of uh, fitness for a particular purpose. Um, so a lot of the uh, the architectural choices we made with Getty were driven by specific uh, things that we needed in in the deployment environment for us at Yammer. So the way that logging works is very very similar to the way a unicorn log would work for Rails, simply because we're trying to be sort of good citizens of the ecosystem that we're living in. Um, that might not be a good choice. For other people, and it's going to be more difficult for someone to make a change to the way logging works with Getty because it is very unified and it is very uh, it is very integrated. All right, let's move along a little bit. Um, I think uh, I'm up next, and I think that I can probably get through it really fast. So, uh, Taco is a framework that I wrote. Um, because I spent a lot of time with Node, and I really wanted something that felt right and really felt like Node uh, and did all the things that I needed for an application that I'm building uh, with Max Ogden for a new company. So real quick, some things that make Taco really different. There, there is no boiler. There is no scaffolding. There's nothing like that. Um, it's a very, very simple API, so it doesn't really need that. Um, you sort of create a Taco application. Uh, which is just one function call, taco. Um, and then you create route objects. So rather than the uh, HTTP method being sort of the top-level route, um, you actually do the route path first, and then you attach um, content type handlers to it, or just a general handler. So you can attach a JSON handler or an HTML handler or a text handler to it, or you can just attach a general handler. And depending on what you support and what you do and don't support, it'll return proper 415 errors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then also for that route, you can say what methods it supports. So if this supports get and put and post, then you know, like it'll respond with you know, that method not allowed if people try to do the wrong thing to it. So it gets a lot of that stuff out of the way. Um, it also, if you, um, if you just have a static string that you want to set, it'll convert that string to a buffer and then create proper uh, cache control headers around it um, and just serve that out of a buffer indefinitely. So that's really nice because you can actually create a route object in a closure and then if you know, you're sitting on some kind of push notification server and you're just updating this cached content all the time, that's how your server can run and you can serve like, a lot of requests at once because all you're really doing is holding this one connection and then updating a buffer in memory. Um, and that's, um, there's, there's also really, really good and simple um, file serving, which is all done uh, under the hood using uh, Filed, which is a streaming file um, library that I wrote. Um, but one of the really cool things there is that it also does uh, proper cache control headers based on a stat call. So you'll get an e-tag and a last modified based on a stat that it does, and it'll return 301 errors for you and all that kind of stuff. So. And it's uh, Socket.io is already integrated and comes with it. It was much easier to just bundle Socket.io with it and then not have it do anything if you don't call it than to try and create a plugin layer for it because Socket.io can be kind of hard that way. Uh, and that's about it. Um, do you guys have anything to say or any questions or anything? It looks really simple. I like the API. Mm-hmm. What are you actually using it for? Uh, like so, like de- in, in a little bit of detail or like concretely? 
Right, right. So uh, me and Max, uh, we... <laughs> We have an application called Gather, which is a mobile app uh, about bringing people together. And so it has, there's a, a web presence that, that is kind of like Instagram in that like when you share things out on Twitter and Facebook, there's a link and we sort of display that link. So um, that requires like every call that ever comes in, I do at least one call to Redis and probably a, a call to CouchDB maybe, um, depending on what the content is. Um, and then I hand that off to a template for the website. I just use handlebars. Um, but a lot of the, the stuff is actually uh, a JSON API for the mobile client. And uh, that JSON API, like, you know, we're doing a lot of raw request calls um, to different HTTP services. You know, we talk to Twitter and Facebook a lot. We talk to CouchDB a lot. We talk to Redis a lot. It's really like we're mixing a lot of different um, like sources that we need to talk to for each of these requests. And some of them are parallel and some of them are sequential. And so there's this page object abstraction that's really nice for dealing with that. Uh, but also just the, the framework not having a lot of stuff in the way and sort of like middleware layers that are going to change any of the streaming stuff that happens um, or create, like, you know, we can't really, we can't take any API that doesn't use like standard node callbacks because all of the things that we have to deal with node use standard node callbacks. So... Um, yeah, I mean, basically, we, we find it to be really good in taking an HTTP request, taking all of the HTTP sort of metadata about it, getting it to the right handler, and then allowing that handler to go off and do stuff. Um, and also, our, our, web, our, our web service actually talks to our own web service a lot. You know, there's a lot of, um, like, for instance, there, there's one API call that will update the geolocation um, of, you know, your, your phone device. Um, but... There's a lot of APIs that need the geolocation of the phone device as well. So what we do is that whenever those calls come in, we just do an HTTP call to our own service to set those. Um, and that, that works really well. And, you know, everything has been going very, very well, actually. So Nice. Yeah, sounds, sounds sort of like, uh, I mean, that's, that's really a sweet spot for Node or one of the sweet spots for Node is sort of cobbling together um, a data from a bunch of di disparate sources and unify it, unifying it into some sort of uh, you know callable API endpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like one of the things is that we, <laughs> what what I wanted a framework to do was to to do Node right um, and do HTTP right and take a lot of the HTTP semantics out of my application code. Like I want my application code to just be about my application and not about HTTP semantics. But also, I don't want my application code to be a plugin layer into my framework, right? I don't want to be writing my application in a way that makes sense for the framework and the plugin or whatever. I just want to have it offload to a handler so that I can use whatever other node libraries that I need to to talk to all these different web services. Fair enough, although it is just JavaScript, which is sort of the neat thing about all of this but stuff. It is there just JavaScript until you deal with, with some somebody's bad library. <laughs> I mean, like, I, just the other day, I was dealing with a library that uh, didn't to support like standard node callbacks. It, like it, it was an object that you know um, w had a callback in the future that only had success, and then errors were only emitted on that object. And that was like I just couldn't use it. It 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 totally broke how the flow of my application needed to happen. Okay, so this is a very interesting subject to me. It's sort of near and dear to my heart as well, having uh, been doing JavaScript for kind of a long time. Mm -hmm. Is this uh, interesting push and pull between what is considered sort of what's considered JavaScript, and there's a lot of debate and argument in the community, including the forbidden word that we're not to mention during this podcast today. Um, 
and and Node as uh, b- both sort of its own idiom. It has its own idiom that is JavaScripty, but it's still kind of its own thing. And the push and pull between you know the JavaScript people wanting to use Node, the 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 Node.js people who are not necessarily or weren't initially super JavaScripty becoming more so. And it is very interesting to me to hear things like you know I just couldn't use this API because, because it didn't it feel, feel uh, Node-ish enough or whatever. Well, so I, I think that there's. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. I I'm just it's interesting right, to right. me. No, I mean, so so like we 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 have some some stuff that we use for flow flow control. Like I mentioned the page object, but there's a lot of other stuff where you know, I I really need my standard interface to be function with an error first, and then uh you know a success object afterwards. That's the actual content. Um, like that needs to happen. My my calls need to look like that for everything to to fit together nicely. Now. There are a lot of abstractions that help you deal with that. Um, and those abstractions all use standard node callbacks or have an interface to standard node callbacks, right? Even, even like Q and other promise abstractions that have, you know, this then syntax and things like that, those all, you know, have a call that will take or return a standard node callback to hand off to somebody. Um, and when you don't use that in your base API, when you create an API that talks to a database or talks to a web service and it doesn't use that standard interface, like I can't use it. Nobody can really use it. And maybe, Michael, maybe you can clarify for people who are listening just exactly what, the, what you mean by standard and, and kind of bring it around to, to the point of where you know, there are people who are, are very used to JavaScript, and then there's node conventions which aren't necessarily specific to JavaScript. Well, I mean, there's really only there's only three node conventions that you need to care about ever. One is the the module pattern, um, which is fairly well understood by now. Um, I think that people tend to think that it's a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Like, I can't tell you how many people have. Um, an index.js file that imports a single file in a lib directory that is their entire thing. Uh, or, yeah, and a lot of people don't know about module.exports equals, like, so you can expose a single function. But other than that, most people understand the, the standard module system. Uh, the other one is streams, which we won't get into now, because um, like, we, we can do a whole podcast. That's a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one is the standard callback interface. So in Node, whenever you're going to go off and do I.O. and you're going to get back a single response, a single success or failure, the pattern for that is that the last argument to that API is a function, and that function takes as its arguments first an error, which will be null if there is no error, and second is a success object. And some of them will allow more arguments after that. But if you look through Node Core, there's actually not a single one. There's not a single API that passes more than one to that. So you, you should be able to do it with just one afterwards. And even if you look at stuff like, like uh, my library request, there, there's a third argument that is the body. But actually, the second argument uh, is the response object. And attached to that is the body, if it's a decoded body. Um, so yeah, that's the standard callback pattern. And, and, in, and in some respects, it, I mean, this is another example of this convention over configuration thing, right? Because you as a node guy can come into any piece of code that behaves this way and have a set of expectations about how things will behave. And if you are a good citizen and write your code this way, you know, yours will play nicely with other people's. And, it, and it's, it's way faster for people to get work done using your shit, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, 
what, right now we're talking about this in the context of web frameworks, right? And, and what I was really saying is that you know, Express has this giant connect middleware system, and it's basically a plug-in layer for an HTTP framework. And I, I don't believe in its right to exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I really don't. I think that's the biggest gripe that people have about Express is the fact that, it, that it, it, at, its, at its center is connect, which is what a lot of people kind of consider to be a mess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um, First off, the job of a web framework is much smaller in Node because you don't have to be, you don't have to have hooks for every state of the entire application because a Node process can hold application state. This isn't Ruby and Python. We're not going to tear down these processes between HTTP calls. So you don't need as much framework and plugin. Um, and Express, you know, understands that. And Express doesn't actually offer like a, a huge API for application state. Um, but for some reason, there's this connect middleware system, which is taking you know, HTTP objects that are already defined by Node and then adding a way for you to add plugins into it. We're really like, I, I think that Express offers a few, a few APIs now that are specifically for people to build uh, plugins and for people to build center stuff. I think that uh, earlier, I don't know if it made it onto the show or not, but it, uh, about the template system, things like that. Like Express offers some APIs for people to extend the framework in a way that makes sense for specific use cases. That's great. And you can design those APIs in a way that they take sort of standard node conventions, right? Like if, it, if it's a file object, like you can give them a stream. And if it's, you know, if it's going to go off and do I.O., you can give them a standard callback. Um, but what Connect is is this oddly incompatible layer, uh, like plugin layer, that has this, you know, next callback thing that like nobody else uses anywhere in okay, Node. So Okay, so how much of that is is sort of legacy of early thinking about how Node, you know, HTTP services should work, and how much of that is baggage from other web frameworks that had this concept of middleware and like I think I think it's actually, the, I think it's all baggage from from previous systems. Honestly, I, I don't I don't think that there's that there's actually a good place for it anymore. I think that some of the things that middlewares do, like because this is the only place for you to hook this stuff into. To express, there are some middlewares that are they're really good that should either I think should either be bundled with and included, like Express should just implement that functionality for you, um, or Express should offer its own API that's that's very targeted at those use cases. Um, so it's not like you can't do things with middleware that is not valid, but that's the wrong place for it, is what I'm saying. Right. I mean, right. So the question is. So, yeah, so the question is, like, you, we were describing it as baggage, and baggage, of course, is something heavy that you have to drag around with you, but baggage is also, like, a place to put your shit, right? So the, the question yeah. is, this I mean, benefit so of, do, of doing things an expected way from somewhere else and their ability to coexist in the, the node paradigm, right? You don't, you don't necessarily have to burn everything else to the fucking ground to be able to use Node. Node is, is also just JavaScript. And, no, and bring, I, 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 brings with I, I it wanna, a lot of... I, like, I actually like your analogy, uh, and I think that it actually proves my point, which is that like, baggage is the place to put shit without really thinking about it, actually. It's just a place to put shit. No, and I mean, if you're on we, a trip, if you're on right, a long and, trip, and, your baggage is like a limited size, and you carry it onto the airplane, and you put well, it, and you worry about where it is. And I mean, so, like, so like, no, like, no like, core... It's dual, it's dual purpose. It's heavy, and it may be kind of a pain in the ass sometimes, but it's also the container for, like, the useful things that you've brought with you, right? No, no. Well, so, so here's the negative part of it, right? We used to have this module in Node called Sys, uh, and it's just been deprecated. And Sys was really just a place for us to put shit 
that like didn't make sense somewhere else. And and yeah, and what what it really was was either things that shouldn't be in core or things that we didn't think about the best place to put them enough to put them where they should be. Uh, And I think that that's what like the connect middleware system is to express. It's stuff. It's stuff that um, if you think about it more, there's a better place for that to go and express, and a better API that express that express could expose for it. and a lot of it is just shit that like shouldn't be in a plugin system, you know. Like I mean, I mean there are database adapters that are in the plugin system. Like that's crazy. Like database, like you should just require a database library and call it. Like it shouldn't. <laughs> there shouldn't be any like pluginness that needs to happen with the with the framework state. You know, the framework doesn't manage the state of the application. The process does. Um, it, it might be kind of an interesting um, time to bring up. Um, some of the other frameworks that aren't really represented here today, but some of the things about them that possibly have some of the same problem of um, of conflating or, or possibly trying to do too much. Um, like, for instance, um, it, it looks like uh, there's a, a framework called Meteor that just came out. Um, and it, it invents its own package manager. Package manager puts it puts it with yeah <laughs> has its own package manager, and and it sort of you know bundles that with the framework, and then uh, it, it also sort of conflates the the, the framework with a service because you can also deploy to their own. They have their own sort of platform as a service. And I don't know about you guys, but. You know, it's like it kind of feels like you know shopping at one of those places where you, know, you can buy your groceries, but you can also buy your tires. And like, I tend to trust <laughs> specialists. You know, um, so like, so I sort of feel like you, there's there's definitely you know like I think what Michael was saying is a really good <laughs> point, right? You know, there's sometimes things in a framework that they don't really need to be in the framework. You know, the, 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 their baggage, um, we, we realized they were baggage and maybe now is still the time to be thinking, are they baggage? Or maybe maybe they're not. Um, but I think that, that definitely it's something that it's like a, a good debate. It's definitely we, a question We have a asking. pretty good package manager. I think that our package <laughs> manager is pretty, pretty good. I don't think that we should throw that baby out with... I had a look at their site and and I didn't I mean I couldn't really tell from from actually reading the copy what 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 the approach was. The only thing I noticed is that they seemed tremendously excited about whatever it was that they were doing. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I think that Matt is one of the few people that will appreciate this. Um, the guys who wrote Meteor were working on Asana. So I mean Oh, here we go. And and, and Asana like literally wrote their own language. <laughs> So yeah, were, at least script, at least yeah. this new thing, this meteor thing, isn't its own language. Um, okay, so speaking of uh, DSLs or languages um, on top of other languages, there's another one, another framework uh, called Derby. Uh, so, Der- or sorry, um, Firebase. So Firebase um, has a jQuery UI based IDE that's required to use it. Uh, because it's it's sort of a DSL, like the whole the whole thing is a DSL. It's its own kind of language. Um, it's built on top of MongoDB, and I think it uses Cloud Foundry or something. Um, and I really don't know how I feel about DSLs or, or alternate languages on top of you know. Like, there's already enough kind of confusion between the you know the the the, the coffee <coughs> coffee script camps and the the you know the JavaScript camps. I mean, adding a, a whole other completely disparate. 
um, thing on top of that seems like um, potentially a challenge for people that might be interested in using Firebase. The, the, the only thing that I think is worth mentioning when it comes to DSLs, and I know Michael is a huge fan of DSLs, um, <laughs> is, that, is that there is a tendency, and again, I think a lot of this has to do with the, the character of the, the early and sort of even now the, the current Node community uh, with, with a lot of people who are very interested in low-level uh, implementation details. Um, there's a tendency to, to define ourselves by de- defining what we're not. You know, we're not the old guard. So looking at Ruby, the Ruby ecosystem and the, and the Rails ecosystem as sort of being the man and we're not going to be the man, right? There's this tendency to, to confuse DSLs, which when they, get, when they become elaborate enough, sure, it's something, it's something to hate because it becomes, they become impenetrable and it's impossible to tell what's going on underneath. But don't confuse DSLs with just an API, right? An API is a kind of a DSL. It's a very, very specific language, and you know, designing an API is really important specifically for that reason. It's a way of the people design, who've designed this library to communicate with the people using it, right? Or even the people using it to communicate with each other, right? Uh, programming is all about intent and express, expression of intent. So, right. I, I'm not really yeah. sure if this conf, you know, confuses um, like APIs with language with DSLs. I, I feel like this is definitely a, a DSL. Um, but I, when I think of language, you know, I think of this, the specific syntax, and I think of the, the you know, how you create method calls and how you deal with objects and you know um, and if you um, google for Firebase I think you can bring up their website it's kind of neat um, but uh, but yeah it's definitely a, a complete abstraction of the of, well a, a majority abstraction on top of uh, JavaScript which I think might be a challenge for some people I, 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 I think that maybe, maybe we're drifting off a little bit here but I think that my, my Point with plugins, which um, it's really like in in the scope of web frameworks, and and my my beef with with plugin systems is fairly minor, um, because that's just one kind of tinier example of just creating a layer of incompatibility with all the rest of the value being created in the Node community. So not just by core, which uses these standard interfaces, but all of the libraries, you know, like probably about eighty percent of which uh, understand these patterns well and, and are using them. Um, or even if they don't understand them well, they tend to use them just because it, it's, it fits it's in. It's there and it, and it works. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to a greater extent, there's uh, things like, you know, the fibers-based frameworks and common node. And um, also there's a Streamline, which does, like, you know, reinterprets the JavaScript to make it look blocking when it's not. And all of these create their own incompatibility layers with node as well. And, and some of them in less obvious ways than others. Um, so, you know, like, Fibers and, and common node are just going to make things behave a little bit differently than, than you would expect. Streamline is actually going to change the scoping rules out from under you, and things can mutate where you don't know about them. There, there's a great post uh, to the mailing list a long time ago by Jeremy Ashkenaz, who they had a, a syntax for doing what, what they called the defer, which would actually, you know, w- would do basically what Streamline does and make it look blocking when it's not um, and allow you to to do all of that, and he didn't end up taking it. They, f- they worked out all the bugs, and, and what Jeremy found was that um, things that are doing I.O. and are going to go off and have these side effects need to look like that so that you can deal with them properly, and you know that state outside of this closure can mutate um, within that context. And all of this stuff is just like, it's, 
it's a lot of sugar around a layer that at the end of the day is going to allow you to take in less value from the community. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I'm totally on board with that. I think uh, one of the things that really interested me very, very early on starting to use Node was how sort of natively JavaScripty it felt. Um, SSJS has been around for a really long time. You could do it on the JVM. You've been able to do it on the JVM for a very long time, and a lot of people did. But it never felt particularly JavaScripty, right? And I think yeah. I think one of the reasons that uh, that Node has been so successful is because it's been very very simple. Uh, if you're if you're at all uh, Unixy, it feels it feels very POSIXy. And if you're a JavaScript guy, it's a joy to use because it feels like native JavaScript. It feels like you're you're in a familiar place. Yeah, um, there was a uh, Bruno, the one of the guys who's really into Streamline, had a big rant that he did recently on the mailing list. But uh, Ryan posted a response to it that basically said one of the reasons why Node has succeeded is because it has embraced JavaScript as it is, and JavaScript as it is does not have threads and it does not have an I/O system, but it does have callbacks, and we can bind those to things that happen in the future in the event system, and we're not doing anything that the language doesn't offer us. Um, okay, so I think we're ready to move on uh, and talk about our second sponsor, uh, Clock, Clock.co.uk. Clock is uh, a consulting firm, and they build some awesome websites. They built a website for the BBC, for Eddie Izzard, for the History Channel. Uh, they're doing Node stuff. They're doing lots of stuff with uh, Jade and Stylus. Um, they're, lo they're located uh, right outside of London, England, and you know I believe that they're also maybe relocating some people there. So if you want to go to jolly old England, um. <laughs> well, they also um, apparently, from what I hear, um, they delivered one of Europe's largest uh, consumer implementations of Node uh, with a loyalty platform that they developed called News International. That's um, awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, they're looking for developers who really want to write open source. So this they, is a they beautiful site. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do they do great, good looking work. They've been around for a while. They have a really good reputation. Um, and they cl they clearly know their audience. I mean, they've got the uh, they've got the the logos here with the representative picture for each one, and of course for the BBC, they've got the honking big picture of the the Doctor Who with the TARDIS in the background. I mean, <laughs> pretty pretty sharp pretty sharp marketing, if you ask me. Yeah, they did a. Um, awesome presentation as well at the London Node User Group about two months ago. Uh, really impressive, just uh, you know, sh highlighting the client portfolio and how they go about making sites and how they uh, really sold the idea of Node to the existing developers. It was really, really good. Yeah, I mean, they were doing a lot of stuff with PHP. I think they were a really big PHP shop, and they've, they've recently started to try to go pretty much Node. This is a recurring theme. <laughs> Seems All <to> right. <laughs> so you can you can follow them on Twitter uh, at clock uh, or get in touch with them uh, via email hello at clock.co.uk or like I said visit them on the web at clock.co.uk. And uh, our next up is uh, Paolo, who's going to talk about Flatiron and why he doesn't use a framework, <laughs> which is like you know that's actually he stole my line because that's my line about test frameworks. So <laughs> oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Um, so Flatiron, yeah, Flatiron grew a little bit organically, similar to, I guess, the way that Getty did. You know, we were 
we were one of the first companies, Nojitsu was one of the first companies using Node and trying to do some sort of production thing with it. You know, and we ended up with a lot of needs and those sort of culminated into a framework. Uh, but we, what we decided was we didn't really want a framework. Um, we had so much different stuff that we were doing. And one of the things that I try to keep in mind is that, or that I think everyone should keep in mind, is that Node isn't a web server. There's a lot more to Node than just a web server, right? So, you know, when we're talking about uh, frameworks, you know, we start to think, oh, well, okay, um, you know, is this going to be Rails or is this going to be Django or whatever? Um, well, you know, a lot of the time you're dealing with like networking problems, not just HTTP. Um, and so, really, like Flatiron kind of is misbranded. It really shouldn't be called a framework. Um, it's a collection of modules. Um, they do work together well. You could build a framework using Flatiron, um, but generally, in, in my experience, what I've seen is that frameworks overall tend to uh, sort of dictate, you know, how something should be done, and and that can either be a good thing or a bad thing, right? So when it's a good thing, you know, you're you're trying to herd your developers into doing things a certain way. That's that's definitely can be beneficial. Um, but then you get into really more complex problem spaces where you need to be able to um, to do a variety of things that, that go outside the scope of a uh, HTTP server or uh, you know a, a, a very strict paradigm kind of like um, uh, you know a conventional web framework. Uh, it's nice to have just components that you can say, okay, well, you know, here's this objective, and here's some of these things that will work for this. And generally, I think that this kind of solution works a lot better than. Um, you know, it works a lot better when you have like rolling requirements and and changing requirements, and and you have generally a larger agenda that that can be very dynamic and and very disparate as far as like its types of uh, objectives go. Um, so, like Flatiron tries to subscribe to the sort of Unix philosophy where each one does each thing that it has does one thing really well and that, that's all it does. And you can use it completely separately from everything else um, or you can use it to talk to the other pieces that are in the framework uh, or that are in this collection of tools. Um, and um, so that's, that's primarily how it's been used. I, I know somebody built something that assembled a bunch of Flatiron components to build something that was sort of Getty-esque. Um, uh, but generally, when people are looking for something kind of like Getty, I send them to Getty. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I, I really personally like the idea of the, the sort of you know black box uh, programming model where you, know, you really have... Um, you really have a bunch of pieces that you, you know you can you can sort of trust that this one thing does this thing, and then you can build everything else your way, however you want. Um, but I, I just I don't use frameworks. <laughs> um, I I just uh, I guess haven't seen any framework that did everything that I needed to do. Uh, but then again, the stuff that I'm doing is I think very specific. You know, building a uh, 
platform as a service or building cloud orchestration software. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely not building Grandma Betsy's biscuit powder websites. <laughs> well, I think you touched on something important, though, which is that um, Node is providing you the entire runtime for an application. Um, and the web framework doesn't need to do that. So the web framework just needs to handle the web part. But there are other components to having a full application um, that you still need, like that are really important. Um, so could you talk about a couple of the components um, that fit that, that are not like part of a standard web framework, but are uh, parts of Flatiron? Yeah, well, you know, there's definitely, um, there's definitely the, you know, the, um, the templating and the routing and, and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that's kind of interesting is if you go to um, github.com um, slash flatiron, um, you'll find a project called Director. Uh, so Director is a router. Um, it does HTTP routing. Um, and uh, it actually also does client-side routing. Pretty much the, there's, a, there's a build of it that actually works in the client. You can do routing in the client. Um, but kind of interestingly... It also does CLI routing. Um, so, you know, doing um, the kind of things that we're doing at Nojitsu, we often need to build a, a CLI tool for you know, some sp specific, uh, you know, maybe uh, it wraps uh, an API um, that connects to a, you know, another TCP server somewhere or something and grabs some data and then present it to you on the command line. Uh, so having a CLI router is kind of like uh, really important for us. Um, we started building like lots of different command line tools, both to use internally and externally. Um, and so we were realizing, okay, well, like, you know, uh, basically typing in these commands, uh, you know, that, are, that have different subsections, it's really pretty much like routing. So, um, so for all three of these scenarios, uh, Director actually accommodates both HTTP, CLI, and client-side routing. Um, there's, there's definitely stuff that's specific to, um, to web. Um, there's a templating library called Plates. Um, and Plates is uh, it's a DSL-less, logic-less templating language, and um, you could use it on its own with... Uh, you could use it with Getty. You could use it um, on the client side with uh, Backbone. Um, but the idea is really to just to present you with the absolute most minimal ability to um, uh, traverse uh, HTML, find IDs or classes or tags or uh, arbitrary data attributes, and then just interject data without having any kind of uh, placeholders or, or whatever. Um, uh, there's, there's some other stuff too that, that is, you know, along the lines of use for building, uh, web applications in Node. Winston is a logger. Um, but it also, you know, we end up using it in TCP servers that never connect to the web. Um, sometimes for instrumentation, sometimes just for finding out how something's operating. Um, but there's about, I think there's like 25 or so projects in Flatiron. Um, and uh, they don't necessarily all go together, um, but there is uh, the ability to bind them all together using the actual Flatiron project. 
So um, that's kind of interesting. I've gone through a lot of the flat iron source and, and a few of the components, and it does feel like a bit of a vertically integrated stack, more, more so than, like, say, a bunch of substack modules or something like that. Uh, but there are certainly parts of it that don't fall under that heading at all. Certain, like, I mean, some of, some of them will have a ton of dependencies, and they're all flat iron projects, um, and some of them don't have any dependencies at all. So do you want to talk a little bit about the ones that are really well vertically integrated uh, and why, and some of the ones that are actually, like, totally standalone? Right, like uh, Node Prompt is totally standalone. I mean, you know, we 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 had run into this issue um, like many many times originally trying to build good CLI tools, and you know, we wanted to, in some cases, building the more user friendly CLI tools to be able to prompt users for information. Um, and um, you know, a lot of a lot of the same things can be done. Um, you know, more Unix-like by either piping in data to the application or uh, expecting parameters. But Node Prompt is you know something that sort of stands on its own and it's really useful. Um, that that has absolutely nothing to do with you know any of these other tools. Um, uh, Broadway, uh, which is really like just a really really tiny uh, application extensibility. Um, module which allows you to sort of you know create a top level object and then uh, be able to do things like feature reflection and and have things tied together and that specifically kind of goes with you know possibly flatiron and maybe um, some of the other components <clears throat> but they all should in theory and so far they have uh, you know perform or, or behave uh, equally as well independently as they do in concert. This is uh, this is really interesting, Paolo. I actually uh, I really liked the way you phrased it. That was very uh, cogently and very diplomatically phrased. The entire sort of description, and it does seem like it really comes down to sort of suitability for a particular purpose, and this sort of this uh, whole continuum that we see where people may have very very modest needs, um, or they may start off having very very modest needs and think that that's that's you know, all they're going to have, or they may start off with a fairly complicated and fairly, fairly volatile set of requirements like you folks, folks have, um, or, or somewhere in between. Um, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know, you know, out of the gate, whether you should be starting with something plug and play, um, or dealing, you know, eating some of the complexity up front. Um, it's, it's fairly easy for me to say, you know, you should start with something plug and play, mostly because if there is a specific requirement, um, I know where everything is, and it's very, very easy for me to go in and add something that's specific to our purpose. Um, that's not so easy for someone who um, doesn't have um, someone with specific purpose needs that that doesn't have immediate access to the framework or doesn't understand the code in it. So, right, a lot of our um, like enterprise customers have um, you know chosen to use Flatiron components. Um, and generally, what happens is they end up dissecting them, and they use parts of it that they really like, um, or they'll use a couple of parts, but they'll build most of their own stuff. That they didn't want to go through the pain of, you know, building an entirely, you know, end-to-end uh, routing system, for for instance. But I think, um, right, like, you know, there's, I think there's two very broad uh, or very evident you know aspects in this spectrum and you know one is um uh it, you know out of, something out of the box will work for me 
and then you know on conversely uh, something needs to be completely flexible in every way and decomposable. Um, I, I don't think that there's any magic bullet framework, but I think that you could probably distill it down to those two basic um, kind of aspects. Yeah, and how uh, how easy will it be for me to uh, to make the changes that I need to make? Uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not easy to know. I still won't use a test framework. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's been that's been another interesting uh, discussion I've seen on Twitter. Which it's actually a little more interesting to me than the the ongoing uh, discussion about that which must not be named, um, simply because there's less. There, maybe maybe because there's less uh, p- there's a little people aren't being quite as dogmatic about it is the whole question of uh, BDD and the Englishy style um, sort of frameworky um, testing approach versus a very very stripped down simple you know I want a JS file that I execute with Node and it has a bunch of asserts in it approach. Well, I think that the life cycle on a lot of these test frameworks is just so fast, right? Like you know I. Um, you know, we we used vows for a long time. Uh, Node unit; those those are um, you know test frameworks. Um, and then uh, you know we, we saw Mocha come out, which was another test framework. Um, and you know, like I saw all these things fly by, and um, you know I've just been using assert basically the whole time. I mean, I, I've tried a bunch of them, um, but you know it really comes back to like. Good old trusty assert because you know I, I don't, I'm not I'm not in bed with this you know uh, project that you know is no longer maintained uh, you know like for instance uh, index zero Charlie Robbins had to pretty much take over um, responsibility for vows uh, it was I think nearly left for dead um, and so I, I just I just don't subscribe <laughs> my, my my issue is actually a little more simply in the realm of understanding what's going on in the tests. And I'm certainly no, uh, I, I don't necessarily have objections to, to an appropriate amount of magic in the right spot. Um, but not looking at the tests and not necessarily knowing, you know, what is, what is application code being tested and what is framework code is a little problematic. Whereas when I see, you know, a, a node, a JS file that's just executed with node and inside of it is what is clearly a bunch of, you know, app logic, and then a simple assert that this is this, right? It's yeah, so yeah. much easier to understand what the fuck's happening. It feels I mean, good. <laughs> yeah. I, it was funny because I, I think when, when I came to Node, I was very burnt out on testing and test frameworks in general. And, I, you know, I wasn't going <laughs> to not write tests, but I wasn't going to use a framework. And I think a lot of the really early comments that I got from people, you know, this is a few years ago, where, you know, well, how are people going to understand your tests? <laughs> it's, it's, now it's hilarious to me because now, you know, there's 12 frameworks and everybody complains about not being able to understand the tests in each other's framework, but everybody can understand my tests because all they are is Node. Just and if you don't understand Node, then you're not going to be actually contributing to my project anyway, so I don't need to worry about you. Yeah, like if you look through like the Node core tests, like it's really easy to tell what's going on. Like They're great. They're great. I love them. All right, let's uh, let's move along now to uh, Socket Stream. So, Owen, do you want to tell us a little bit about Socket Stream? Uh, what sure. what makes it really different, and uh, why why you came about it? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess so. Socket Stream is a an ongoing experiment, really. It's something I started about eighteen months ago. Um, really inspired, really looking at Socket IO and 
really thinking maybe you know this is the future of um, web applications in terms of you know get booting up, sending the CSS, sending the HTML, um, and then allowing uh, the WebSocket to be used to do the application data, you know, such as your model data or any, you know, if you retrieve a record from the database and you want to display that on the screen, just sending the actual data as JSON and then using client-side templates to actually render that on the screen versus server-side templating. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing experiment. Um, uh, it's gone through many incarnations in terms of uh, figuring out, you know, the best way of not only doing uh, things on Node, but also the best, you know, how how um, sort of far do you draw the line of what a framework should do. Um, also, as I mentioned earlier, um, heavily really inspired by what Express does in the way that you use Express within your app and it remains your app, which you start with sort of Node app versus some sort of proprietary way of starting it, which we used to have in a previous version. Um, and, uh, you know, really trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, can, can we use, uh, uh, if you want to do something with SocketStream, such as make a single page app and, you know, make perhaps make an online game or something like that, or, you know, a, a server side, uh, a sort of a dashboard for like, uh, you know, monitoring a server use or something like that. Yeah, these are the sort of use cases which, which I, I had in mind. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's been progressing like that. Uh, the latest version, 0.3, is uh, still under, um, I'm still working on that at the moment. Um, and really, I, um, I think what makes it special is that uh, it's geared primarily just to uh, single page applications. Um, so um, things like client-side templating um, is, is really well covered. We also have um, uh, like a live reload system in that, similar to the one that you may have seen in Meteor. Um, and uh, also, uh, you know, we've got a built-in asset manager as well, so that if you're using CSS or JavaScript and things like that, that it's all minified and packaged in a production environment for you. Um, and unlike, uh, you know, other frameworks out there which are trying to dictate what you use on the client side, for you know, um, it, you know, like Meteor at the moment, it allows you to uh, do models, but you sort of have to do it in in the way that they say. The whole ethos behind SocketStream is to allow you to continue using existing client-side frameworks that you're happy with, such as Backbone or Ember.js, which I'm really, really interested in. Um, so yeah, so that's that's it in a nutshell. It's it's a very different take on what a web framework is. It's an ongoing experiment, um, but we've got quite a few people who are already using it at the moment to um, uh, to build apps. And uh, you know, I'm really enjoying the sort of process of discovering how this works, and also looking at the uh, you know sort of competitors out there, such as Darby.js and um, you know uh, Meteor, for example, and seeing how they fit into this broader ecosystem. Well, it's certainly the most uh, British framework that we've had on the show, uh, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so one of the things about uh, real-time single-page apps that we've seen a lot of um, is that it's very easy to, to put a lot of people on a process and to scale out the experience per process. Um, but as soon as you need to have multiple processes, it gets a little bit more complicated. And I'm wondering if you have anything uh, like Redis support or like a, a nice built-in way of scaling out to multiple processes. Sure. So, yeah, so we, 
we use Redis uh, for two things. One is uh, for session management to to store persistent uh, session, sessions and also as a sort of event transport as well. So if you send an event through the system and it then percolates events out to the various connected users, we use it for that too. Um, now, at the moment, we're just using Socket.io in the back end, um, but I've tried to architect it in a way where we can take out Socket.io in the future and try things like Socks.js, which it looks qu quite interesting. There's also commercial services such as uh, Pusher Pipe, which are quite interesting too, uh, which they handle the scalability, uh, scalability for you, at least on the front end. Um, but, you know, it's certainly, as I say, it's very much an experiment in progress. I'm really trying not to do too much of uh, building too much sort of scalability options into the framework. I, I had a crack at that in a previous version, and um, you know, the more you, the more sort of functionality you lay on top of each other, you know, it's it's. <laughs> I soon soon realised I was going down the wrong track, and um, you know, so. 0.3, the version that's currently on GitHub, is a much slimmer, leaner take on what, what we actually need to do. And I think over time, um, both Meteor and Darby and everybody else who's working on these problems will discover new ways of handling the scalability. And you know, I think we can all learn from each other there. I think that's, that's actually a really interesting uh, comment to make, sort of uh, ad adding features or adding functionality and perhaps adding them either in the wrong order or writing them in... in what turns out to be a suboptimal way. That's, that's a problem that you see in, in any kind of complicated piece of software. That's a, an a ongoing refrain that we hear from all of the different, uh, all the different teams at Yammer. What, uh, we, we have limited resources. We have this set of problems that we're trying to solve and knowing you know, which problems to work on uh, will be the most beneficial to the largest group of people and knowing which order to work on them so that you don't sort of paint yourself into a corner uh, so it becomes impossible to to build the next next thing or or build it in a, a reasonable way or it takes egregiously long because you have to you know rewrite. Um, mm. It's an interesting engineering problem to solve. It is. It's, I think it's the hardest uh, for me. I think it's always been the hardest problem as a sort of framework author to figure out well how how far do you go and do you put this into the core or do you do this as an optional module uh, module or do you simply document it and not do it at all? Do you just explain how you would do this? Um, and I think anyone who's written a, a framework probably has gone through that thinking process thinking, okay, you know, well, maybe this isn't something that everybody's going to use. Maybe this is too opinionated or, you know, maybe we're, we're not interested in supporting this use case whatsoever. Um, you know, so it's knowing where to draw the line. I think that's very important. Yes, that's a problem we had with the Getty model stuff very early on. There, of course, uh, with a framework like that, there are a lot of expectations that people bring that it should work a certain way. And uh, if the technology is not quite there yet or there's not the resources to do it right, uh, doing it in kind of what turns out to be a half-assed way becomes more of a problem because it seems to be working you know, for some value of working. But to progress any further then is impossible because of the, you know, the stupid uh, initial choices in the implementation. Um, we're we're yeah. still trying to figure yeah. out the model stuff. Uh, it's really weird and interesting to see the the expectations people have for you know easy use of easy access to persistence um, with with or with an ORM or whatever in the, Indeed, in, yeah. in, the in existing frameworks, and then you know marrying that to all of the changes that we've seen in web development now with uh, this. You know, different types of persistence stores per model, polyglot persistence, mm. and then and then real time the the stuff that you're wrestling with in your mm. framework. And I think you know, in defense of uh, Meteor, uh, which we've talked about briefly, and also Darby, you know, the the reason these guys are building models and persistence. Uh, 
into their frameworks is because there's a huge demand for it by web developers, you know, out there. They, they've had this in Rails and, you know, they want to be able to sync model data over the web socket. You know, they want uh, DOM elements on their page to automatically update when somebody enters a new record into a web, uh, into a database and things like that or changes a value in a database. And this mm -hmm. is, all, you know, this is definitely without doubt um, where web development is going over the next few years. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... The, the approach I've taken with SocketStream is that I've, um, uh, instead of actually trying to build a model layer into the framework or an ORM layer, um, I've taken the approach of uh, opening up an API. We call it requ uh, request responders. I'm doing some work on that at the moment, and these changes will be pushed within the next few days. Uh, and the idea is to really allow people to... Um, invent uh, new ways of doing this, you know, how do you do authentication, how do you do security, how do you do, you know, ACL so that you can't, uh, some, sometimes you can write stuff from the client and sometimes you can't, you know, or maybe if you're logged in as you, then you can, and, you know, but you can't obviously see anyone else's customer records and all these sorts of problems. So there's, there's a whole new... Um, uh, whole new stack of issues that people are wrestling with, but, um, you know, I, I feel, I have no doubt about it, this is where it's all going. Uh, somebody on IRC made the comment that they thought that perhaps that some of that is more the responsibility of the database. Yeah, absolutely, indeed. And I mean, I think Meteor was the first really out of the gate to allow you to have like a database API on the client side, uh, and that's you know that's new really. That's that is that's what made a, a really wow sc screencast and made it you know rise so quickly on Hacker News and so on. Um, but you know, th there is somewhere between offering this full stack solution that does all of that and you know assembling modules there is some sort of sweet spot i believe where um you know if you're using something like backbone you want to be able to do backbone backbone.save and have that model save its data and sync that data over the web socket to database you know on the other end a persistent database um but quite how we solve all those problems at the moment, um, you know, I think time will tell. And what I'm trying to do uh, with SocketStream is open up and document API so that people can experiment with these ideas um, and, you know, may, may the best idea win, basically. And we can, we can sort of support those and, and uh, promote the, the, the good modules on our website. That's the plan. Yeah, it's not entirely clear where the responsibility lies. Um, uh, a lot of people. I mean, if, if you're talking about distri a distributed data so data store, some of the some of the responsibility may lie in your application code for you know winnowing down a request to the the pieces of data that you're interested in. Um, that that's one of, obviously one of the reasons that Mongo has MongoDB has become so popular is because it has a nice expect you know uh, API that conforms to people's existing expectations um, while yeah. sort of pur purporting to be. Um, doing things the the new way, I'm I'm sure it's not because of its uh, its awesome durability story. So <laughs> <laughs> get, get Michael started. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, putting bay, I'm putting the bait. I'm putting the bait out. I'm putting the bait out. He's not. He's he's not. He's not taking it. So disappointing. Um, well, no, you, you you just said it wrong. It's Mongo's non-existent durability story. <laughs> I think what we've we've really got to sort of step back and think, you know, the reason why these uh, things like Mongo and, and Meteor um, quite, you know, get so popular so quickly is, is because people really just want to get stuff done at the end of the day. And um, you know, I think a, a mistake that um, that well, I think a mistake we could so easily make is 
is caring too much about uh, you know the every sort of low level detail when the vast majority of web developers out there do actually want to you know boot into something that works out of the box do want to make something that their clients going to really like uh, you know do want to sort of wow wow the competition if you like you know making something that's better than the, the competing you know business out there whatever it is you know something new and unique and I think uh, you know is I think web frameworks are just um, one of those things where you know it, it, not everything's going to be perfect for everything else. And you've just got to find the right exactly. tool for the right job, and you know choose. Uh, you know, if if each web framework out there has a sweet spot and it advertises that well, and it sends you to the competition if you don't fit in that sweet spot, uh, sweet spot, I think you know um, that'd be quite a, a, a sort of nice way of doing that. And um, yeah, there's certainly things like. Um, SEO, which is a very interesting thing to to tackle when it comes to real time. You know, what? How do you do a single page app, which where all the data is flowing over the web socket, and how do you do? How does SEO fit in with that? And and for example, you know, Derby is a really good um, uh, solution to look at if you're actually interested in SEO and something that renders nicely on the on Google as well as. That's, that's kind of an interesting point, though. Is SEO right? I mean, like if you're building a fairly sophisticated application and you know, it's 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 like an app. It you know it has a, a lot of functionality to it. Like generally, you want SEO to advertise things, and mm. so it seems like with SEO, you know, you really want like a marketing collateral, like a site that's specifically for marketing the product, mm. and then you want the product. So SEO sometimes doesn't really seem very important when you're talking yeah. about building real time actual application. Exactly, and I've always sort of um, thought that the type of applications you'd more likely make in SocketStream were the sort of applications that run on an iPad. You know, so it could be a game, it could be you know some sort of monitoring thing where you you know, or like a trading desk or something like that. Something that's not likely to have any content that Google's interested in anyway. Um, so you know, th this is these are the sort of decisions that people need to wrestle with uh, when they're thinking what framework should I choose and you know, think about the type of content that's going to be there. If it's all user generated and Google's not going to be interested in it then SEO is not really a concern. Um, you know, but there's, this, I think it just underscores how important it is to have uh, you know, a good mix of frameworks out there that have a sweet spot in different areas. Yeah, so so not to get too uh, too kumbaya on on you you people here, but um, I think that's a really really important point. And one of the one of the distinguishing characteristics of the JavaScript community historically has been how welcoming and accepting it has been to people of all backgrounds, all programming environments, all programming languages. And that probably historically has to do a lot with the fact that you know everyone kind of had to touch JavaScript for some reason or another. Um, and that's one of the things that I still find uh, refresh, very refreshing and um, very positive about the JS community is that there's less uh, sort of dismissive uh, sniffing at th things that aren't done in, in a way that you might consider intellectually pure and more uh, focus on you know, getting shit done and, uh, and encouraging the other people who are working in the other areas that, that maybe, it, maybe it's not your area, but just uh, encouraging people who are doing cool work. So. Um, I like to see that. I, I still think we have less of it than, than in other communities, but um, as more and more people come into to, to working with JavaScript and into Node, I think there's going to be the temptation to become sort of the, the Rails. I don't, want, I, I don't want us to become the Rails douchebag ecosystem, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I totally agree. No, I think, um, yeah, totally agree. 
I, I think I have like a, a larger post that I need to do at some point about this, but um, communities tend to be encouraging um, of any work that you do um, relative to the amount of value that they can derive from it. And like we, we get caught in these feedback loops where people are creating a lot of really good stuff and the more that everybody can sort of use it and be involved in it, the more feedback that they'll get. And that's why things like, you know, layers of incompatibility, like the plugin thing that we talked about, or um, alternative concurrency patterns, like, you know, people that want to do sync IO or fibers and stuff. That's why, like, they, they tend to not have a very good feedback loop and, and relationship with the rest of the community because there's not a lot of value that everybody else can derive from that work. And so you right. don't really know how to, how to take it. And there's, like a, there's a huge difference between, like, being accepting of new ideas um, and, and new approaches to things. Um, and you know, when those are compatible, right? Like when those are something that you can actually use and that you can do something with, right? Like I don't think that our reaction to Meteor JS uh, from from the Node side of things, I mean, the JavaScript community as a whole was was fairly open to it and like that's interesting. But from the Node side, we were like, why would you write your own package manager? That's insane. Um, like there's nothing that we can do with this now because you did this thing. Yeah, I, I think so. But to sort of leap into the defense slightly, I think um, you know the, one of the main reasons they did that is because they wanted to allow um, somebody to make a plugin that would deliver client assets as well as you know code on the server. So you could actually send uh, automatically send something to the client, you know, like a, a back, uh, backbone library or you know make your own custom module or something like that. Um, you know, and I think the, the, there was a isn't, reason isn't that why what, that would browserify uh, does that. Browserify does that. Yeah, it does. We use that um, in SocketStream as well because um, it, uh, you know one of the great things about using Browserify is that if you write yourself, um, if you write a module and you want to share that on the client and the and the server, you can just simply require it, require the same module in both. So that is basic code sharing between the server and the the client, done really nicely. Um, but uh, yeah, I think coming back to to Meteor, you know, the um, it is about providing. Uh, for, for them, it's about providing a full stack solution and a you know hosting platform that works as well. So yeah, it's I think from a business perspective, it's it's a it's a smart choice. From a Node community perspective, then you know perhaps not so. But um, I think if you read what they're trying to do, they're really trying to create their own platform out there from scratch. And I think it just so happens that it's based on Node. So so yeah. So here here's part of the the, the question of the problem is. Um, we're talking about people who are creating value. And sadly, or maybe not so sadly, we're all different people who have different priorities and different understanding or different ideas about what's important and what constitutes value. So these guys have a certain different set of values. And it also it also comes down to, to this idea that Node is a, a thing unto itself. It's an ecosystem. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of uh, developing applications. But it's also just JavaScript. And people do all kinds of crazy pants stuff with JavaScript, including this. Um, it, it, it's it's a value judgment, and, and clearly for for their business uh, proposition, this makes sense to them. But you you could make the argument that in the long term, it's going to hurt them because being a good member of the of the community that you're you're a part of, being a good citizen, um, is all, almost always a better long term bet than sort of selfishly focusing on your own. Uh, your own particular agenda at the expense of, of the well, community. Yeah, I mean, I, do, I don't think that it's that it's actually healthy for a, a community that's focused to be encouraging of every crazy-ass science project that anybody does that, that is actually a layer of incompatibility. I think that it's actually sane for that community to, to be 
pretty dismissive of things that are clearly incompatible. Yeah, I mean, the, like, the thing like, is, in, incompatibility is not an on-off switch, right? There's there's a continuum of in, incompatibility to, you know, that guy doesn't use semicolon. Oh, I, I almost used the word. That guy doesn't write code the way I would to... Um, that's not a know, layer of compatibility. That's a layer of annoyance that you might have, but it's not a layer of incompatibility. It's, no, no, no. It is a layer of incompatibility in that code that is written in a completely different way from my expectations is d- more difficult for me to interact with. There is friction. It's not, it's not, so, it's not such an awful level of, uh, of friction that I, it's impossible for me to interact with. And this is my point. It's not an either-or proposal. Script, <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, come on. I laid out some bait for you earlier, and you, uh, you didn't take it. So, <laughs> tit All for right. tat, buddy. <laughs> so, yeah, that, but, the, but the, point, the point remains that it's not, it's not an either-or, you know, for some people, the idea of doing anything the way the Ruby guys would do it is, you know, this awful, horrible, heretical proposal. Um, and for other people, it's a perfectly uh, sensible approach in that it leverages uh, people's existing expectations when they come into the community, right? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, like Meteor, Meteor was, it, it didn't feel to me like Meteor was really announced to the Node community. It was really announced like to the web development and JavaScript community. And you know the responses there were sort of mixed, and, and that's sane. It wasn't like uh, they were trying to push it on to you know, Node people specifically, because there I think that you would expect a fairly negative response. Um, I was more I turned off, I don't think their target is people that are using Node currently. I but, was more, uh, more frankly turned off by the, the sort of cheerleading language in the, in the copy. That was a little... Anything that's sold to that level of, of rah-rah excitement um, almost never delivers or almost never lives up to its. And it may be a wonderful product, but uh, if the product is that amazing, then it, you, would, you would hope that it would stand on its own merits. Whenever I release a library, I'm, I'm sort of like dismissive of it myself. Like, I wrote this for me, Ed. You might like it. <laughs> It's my it's my open source toilet. Have you guys read that article? It's the open source toilet sitting on the side of the road. And if you want to pick it up and take it home and dust it off and plug it into your plumbing, feel free. But it's a toilet. That sounds gross. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty nice essay. I'm trying to remember if it was Nathan Fritz or who it was that wrote the essay. So I think we're we're nearing the end here. Um should we go to IRC for questions? People have questions? Yeah, yeah. Let's open it up for questions in IRC. People should be fast, though, so that we're not just, you know, meandering here. Um, it seems like uh, a lot of people have uh, a lot to say about Couch, or a lot to say about Mongo. Uh, but I don't see any of it being phrased as a question. You know what? So, we have a database deep dive that we did, like, months ago that's uh, still pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> if not uh, more so, because I pretty much said that Mongo is a piece of shit, and there's only been more articles about that <laughs> since then. So, tell us how you really feel, Michael. Don't hold back. Don't be so shy. I, I think well, I, I want to go too much off topic here. So, I don't. But I'm, but I, I'm still not <laughs> people phrasing things as questions. I see them sort of just making statements. Questions don't begin with statements. <laughs> Uh, any performance comparison between all those frameworks? Um, I, I mean, I don't. We definitely don't have any numbers. Um, maybe a few people want to just talk about things that they know that they optimize for, that they know they do really fast. Um, for instance, like I know that 
Um, in my framework, if you, you know, if you ever set a response to a string or if you're doing any file serving, we, we do that the most optimal way possible. Um, yeah, for, I for real world. I, I don't think uh, that, that there's really uh, much to really say about performance, per se, in Flatiron because it really depends on how many of the components that you use to build something. Um, but we know that our, our HTTP or our router is very efficient. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple. Um, but yeah, I, uh, does Getty have any performance uh, I, I ran some performance uh, some performance numbers very early v1 v, uh, v0.1 have not recently um, and it, of course the, the the focus with Getty is much more development velocity than uh, performance of the app and when your 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 frame of comparison is something like rails um, it's fast enough uh, as I mentioned we're using it for all of our file and image uploads at yammer it's uh, I think I think the uh, I think the last number I saw, I want to say it was for either January or February, was 300k uploads per month, and that's videos and files and doing the uh, the thumb, thumbnailing uh, there on board. Uh, so it's it's definitely fast enough. I th- I, maybe they were asking for an analog between maybe Rails and in some of these Node frameworks. I think sort of by nature of the design of Node, um, that they would probably all be faster. Uh, the the v zero dot one uh, comparison and it was literally just like a hello world that did a single database call and uh, wrote the response out but went through the whole request uh, response rendering cycle was something on the order if I remember correctly of like fifty x faster than Rails. Yeah, I mean that's not really a comparison. I mean I was asked, yeah. uh, I was speaking at a meetup recently and they said you know like where. What what are you trying to match in terms of performance? Like, are you going after Rails or Django? And I said we're we're trying to be faster than Nginx. We're not even thinking about these like frameworks at all. Yeah. Um, that's what we're trying to to beat. Um, I think that uh, I do know that the file server middleware crap that is in Express is optimizes for some pretty weird cases. Um, like for benchmarks, they will cache all the files in memory, um, which is you know going to use up a bunch of memory. Um, and they'll also do sort of like they just do a lot of very very odd caching that I don't entirely understand. Um, and then when they, I think when they str- for a while when they were streaming the files, they didn't actually use proper streams. I'm sure that they fixed that by now, but um, at, at the time they didn't. And some of them, I mean, there's a million file server middlewares and some of them are probably better than others but I know that some of them don't actually return e-tags and some of them do So, I think there's a culture kind of question here <clears throat> uh, a fellow named uh, Max Ogden uh, writes uh, are node people going to be viewed as in an ivory tower and is that going to make us look like dickbags okay so I think that he is including himself in that statement uh, I guess he's a member of the Node community. Any of you guys know this guy, Max? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I only know uh, people by their beards. So oh, oh, he's n- uh, the beard. N- nope. Never I'm heard sure. of him, right? Am I know? Anyway, uh, what, what was this question again? No, um, I, I I actually I like I, I know that he's saying it in a really sarcastic way, but I do kind of get what he's saying where. 
a lot of people can't use Node for everything, and I think that everyone who's building these tools um, is in the strange position of being able to throw away like 10 years of tooling um, and go to full Node stack, uh, with a few exceptions. Like yeah, I know we don't that, we don't have that we don't have that at Yammer. We're we're fitting into an existing ecosystem. Yeah, um, and that yeah. does change the the approach that you take. Obviously, yeah. Um, I know that you're doing that. I know that uh, for Express, like they're they're still behind uh, a lot of like traditional load balancers. Um, I mean, I'm behind a TCP load balancer that I wrote that hooks up to Stud called Stud Proxy. Um, like my, my entire stack is, is Node and our entire front end is JavaScript. So we do take a lot of things for granted that you know, nobody else would be able to do. You're living uh, in a bubble. You're living in a bubble, man. Well, yeah, but it's a, I run the company. and It's a delicious it, JavaScript-y bubble, like admittedly, but still. I, well, I mean, like we, we're building a new product. Like we, we get to start with something. You know? in, in a few years, some of this might be baggage. But right now, it's, it's sort of... <laughs> you think maybe it might be? Maybe uh, I think that architecture <laughs> architecture is really componentized, so I don't think that it'll be too hard to swap out parts that aren't making the cut. Um, and and Every, the fact everything that, becomes baggage in a couple of years. No, no, I, I think that it's a little bit different when all of that baggage is Node, though, because Node does move very quickly, and because sure. if and and if you've taken that, you're not saying, well, you know, we have this enterprise, you know, monitoring software that only integrates with Nginx or Varnish or whatever. Like you're clearly, you're not using that and you, you only has a, only has a soap interface. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, like that's, that's not going to be a problem for us. Uh, so I, point point being though, like say out loud, say for example, you know, this, this website, you know, uses Ajax to like fetch its data. Just like say that out loud and feel the word Ajax in your mouth and how that feels versus what it sounded like five years ago you know everything has a relatively short sh- shelf life so uh god somebody said coffee script or javascript which is better i mean i think that like we <laughs> i i really don't want to go off wow. that's just a troll that's that's troll. really I know, yeah. I know it is i know it is. oh mr fancy english words oh awesome okay um anyway <laughs> but um i do i do want to say that uh matt just had this long comment about layers of incompatibility and how he finds, you know, lack of semicolons annoying. And I find lots of semicolons very annoying and his weird version of comma first that nobody uses is very annoying. <laughs> but, but no, like, I, being like everyone on my team, but okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Everybody on your team that you dictated the style guide to. Yes. Uh, no, no, that's no, just, no. that's basically you. A communal effort. It was a communal well, effort. We both know that you can out talk people. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Coming from you, that's uh, quite the compliment. <laughs> but uh <laughs> anyway well as, um, aside f- aside from preference like i know that uh, you know almost all of our clients that have engaged with node won't let coffeescript into their stack uh simply because they feel like a number of the problems uh well a number of the things that they feel are deficient about javascript as a language will be um addressed in in the new version of javascript so they feel like it's it's not really a worthwhile investment to to try to deviate from such a readily available core competency yeah i mean i think that um like we were saying with with, with levels of compatibility Running it in CoffeeScript means that you have a, a smaller amount of people that are going to be willing to work on your project. Um, 
you know, much, it, it's a much bigger difference than coding style. Like I can deal with anybody's coding style. I, I contribute to Substack's projects and he uses, you know, four space tabs and things like that. Whoa, like I, you know, that I, is I, crazy. I deal with it, but I deal with it and it's fine <laughs> um, because it's just JavaScript, but I won't contribute to somebody's coffee script thing because I, I just don't care enough. Um, and, you know, even more so for something like Fiber. So I think that like picking coffee script is just putting yourself deeper into the incompatibility scale. Um, it, it is interesting, though. It, it does seem like sort of almost a, per, a personality lit, litmus test, right? Because the people that like it really, really like it for reasons that I think are completely unimportant, right? So it's a matter of uh, priorities and what, what people put their value on. And it seems almost like at this point that the people who like it really, really like it, insist on using it, and will continue to use it. So that debate and the other debate, which must not be named, I almost feel, feel like now at a point we should be just past talking about it because everyone's already made up their minds about what they think about it. And, and frankly, with that, <laughs> yeah, frankly, show. <laughs> frankly, I would rather just fucking get some work done, right? Well, so we, we have another valid question, um, okay. which was, uh, what is stud? Uh, stud is an SSL terminator. So what it does is it, it's just like uh, a lot of raw C code that will spawn threads to the number of cores that you have and deal with decoding SSL. And then what it does is for every SSL connection that comes in, it creates a new TLS connection to one uh, TLS like server that you have up somewhere that you can use for load balancing. And all it does is get rid of the SSL, it does nothing else. Uh, and those connections are one-to-one. -one. So you know, if one connection drops out in the middle, you actually get the right TCP events about that. Um, there's a project that I have called Stud Proxy, which is on my GitHub, which um, takes the first few bytes of every new connection, which tells you the uh, IP address and port, it tears those off, and then it'll round robin load balance to, um, it'll round robin load balance to whatever number of servers that you've configured. So um, you can check that out. But STUD itself is just this amazing project in C that works really, really well. It looks like um, somebody in IRC wrote, I don't know why, but they wrote semicolonic that's hilarious. <laughs> that was you, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that we're ready to, to tear it down. Uh, it's time for plugs. Uh, anything that people are plugging. I have a product coming out in, like, uh, soon. So uh, watch, me, watch me on Twitter, uh, at M-I-K-E-A-L, and uh, I will announce that product at some point. Cool, very cool. I, of course, need to mention that Yammer is hiring like everybody else. The only uh, interesting different thing, uh, recent, the recent development, is that we're actually opening our London office up to development now. So we're hiring in the EU. So if you're at all interested in doing interesting JavaScripty stuff at Yammer, uh, hit me up. It's mde at yammerinc.com. Yes. Um. So I'd like to mention uh, Testling. Um, it's a pretty awesome uh, company that focuses on testing stuff, testing browsers Ooh. through really awesome Node APIs. Um, but just Google for Testling and you'll have your mind blown away. Um, Nojitsu just started a um, partnership with Joyent um, in order to deliver an enterprise cloud uh, orchestration offering um, and uh, the benefit that everybody gets out of that is that you can now run dtrace stuff in your node programs which is pretty awesome 
um, debugging. Um, yeah, Nojitsu is awesome. <laughs> uh, to go back to testling just for a second, uh, testling, you, it's, it's crazy awesome. Uh, so it is. Subsec, subsec, it's so I keep hearing people talking about this thing. Yeah, so and they all the seem so excited. So Substack wrote it, and Substack has a really low threshold for just like taking AST and gobbling it together and doing awesome things with it. So uh, what it is is you, you can actually write a, a test that is a node, and you create a browser object, and then in a callback, you like get an object. You're actually now inside of the context for that browser for whatever browser it is, uh, and then you can do stuff like you know console log and play with the DOM and all that stuff inside of that function. But you can and also then, wait, really hold, hold on, let me finish. So. Let me finish. Uh, <laughs> when there, when <laughs> now, now you would think that because like that is clearly getting pulled out and, and run in the browser, you wouldn't get nice line numbers and your tracebacks. Not true. Any exception that you throw just through an assert, you'll actually get full line numbers from that file wherever you are. Um, it's, it's awesome. And then you can actually take that test file and just with a single curl call, the curl call will send it up to the server and then it'll run that on all the browsers that you, that you configured it to run for. Um, and you'll see all the output just in the response to that curl command. So it's it really... pretty crazy amazing. It's super badass. It'll blow your mind right off. <laughs> your head will come. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to this. I had that Headless. happen one time, but it was uh, it was chemically assisted. <laughs> you were a, a headless browser. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Owen, what, do you want to plug anything? Um, no, not really. I'm not selling anything or anything. But if anyone's interested in uh, looking at Socket Stream and seeing, you know, just sort of uh, downloading it, giving it a go, and and really is interested in exploring how we can do uh, model syncing, looking at how we can handle security, um, things like that. You know, I'd be really interested to hear from you, and uh, it'd be great to get some more contributors on board. Oh, I should probably say something about Flatiron. <laughs> Flatiron's on GitHub. You can, uh, you, you guys from uh, Socket Stream or Getty, you guys can use Flatiron stuff if you want. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel keeps threatening to uh, to take a look at uh, Broadway, so that may be happening at some point relatively soon. Um, also, some I, I've already said that if somebody sends me a pull request, I will replace the the routes in Taco with Director if somebody writes it for me. Because um, I'm told that it's very fast. So. Cool. I accept pull requests. We all accept pull requests. That's Absolutely. The, that's the final plug there. Sure Patch is uh, accepted. Yeah, a few things. Um, uh, so Lisbon.js is uh, announced. You can go to, I believe it's lxjs.org. Isn't that it? Yes. So 2012.lxjs.org for the Lisbon JavaScript conference. And there is currently a reverse call for speakers. Um, and they'll be opening up tickets at some point in time. It's not happening until September, so you know there's plenty of time for tickets. But uh, get your proposals in now, um, or ask them. You know, tell them what you want to see at the Lisbon JavaScript conference in Portugal. Uh, NodeConf is definitely still happening. I'm this. This is a new announcement. Uh, I'm currently the plan, uh, if everything goes properly, is to do the first lot of early bird tickets. The lot of tickets that will have rooms attached in the Jupiter to them, uh, on the 27th of April. So if you're a speaker, you will know by the 27th of April uh, if you are speaking or not. Uh, there will not be a posted list of speakers or schedule before the event. And Awesome. Yeah, so you're and just going to call up speakers like in a random order? 
No, I mean, I have <laughs> no, 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 actually uh, all the speakers will know who is around them. Uh, and, and the, the, the program is incredibly curated and there's like a beginning and middle and end to the day and, and there's sections with themes. And so each speaker knows about the other speakers around them. Um, and that, yeah, there will, I will be communicating directly a lot with the speakers. And There'll we'll be know. bacon martinis. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> there will be bacon. We can't have, it won't be a JavaScript event without bacon. Uh, also, I want to announce that uh, tomorrow I'll put up the, the actual voting, but we're going to have, we're going to have the first annual node awards or the nodies. And so <laughs> we're going to have a, a limited amount of things that we really want to, um, awards for basically different kinds of community participation. Um, and just sort of calling out a few people and, and recognizing people that have really gone like way beyond in doing uh, awesome stuff that is beneficial to the community. Uh, and there will be an open um, call for votes on that and for suggestions. So you can put in whoever you think should get that award and then I'll tally them up and announce um, the nominees for each category. And that'll be sort of like, you know, if if two or three people get the vast majority of the votes, um, they'll be the only nominees. But if it's more evenly weighted, there might be four to eight nominees per section. Uh, and then there will be um, a list of people uh, that are node, uh, mostly people around node core and, and big community leaders who will do, uh, will send me votes on who should win. And then we'll finally uh, give them out at NodeConf. Is, is there going to be any way to prevent Substack from winning every category? <laughs> I, 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 I'm pretty sure that it's going to be limited to you, you can only vote for one person in the category um, and that, that goes for uh, the and I, I think what we'll actually end up doing is cutting people from no no I can't do that uh, but, <laughs> so the, the, the final the, the final vote uh, be, with just the, the panel of people that will be voting um, they can only pick one person for each category so no, Substack can't win all of them. <laughs> Thank goodness. Oh, there's also another cool Node event happening in Philadelphia for people who are in Philly. Um, yes. Well, Monday? Yeah, actually, no. If you don't have a ticket, then you can't go. But it's sold out. <laughs> to where? To Philly. Oh, it is. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so you already know about it then if you're going. <laughs> It'll be awesome to see you there. I'll be there. And uh, Paolo will be there. <laughs> And if you don't have a ticket, I'm very sorry. Um, I think that's I all that we it was sold out. <laughs> okay. uh, no, uh, no, uh, JS Conf Argentina isn't sold out that I know of. So, I want to go to Buenos Aires? That's still open. Ah, very, very quickly uh, before I forget, uh, this next week I'm going to be at the DevOps uh, conference in Paris. Uh, the end of the week. If any JavaScripty people are around, um, would love to buy you beer and talk semicolons. There, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> or not semicolons, uh, as the case may be. You know that, that one thing a year that one of us gets to win? This is, <laughs> this is going to be my win, and you know it. Oh, yeah. Dream on, Michael. Dream on. <laughs> who, oh, Michael, my, my who kids are saying... My kids are saying hi, by the way. My kids oh, are telling you hi. Say, say hi back. Okay, <laughs> Tell them both back. Back. <laughs> So what were you saying about the comma first? I won that. Okay, well, with that, should we, uh, should we call it? Yeah. We, is that, yeah, is that a show? It. That was a good show. It was a good show. It was nice. It was nice meeting y'all. <laughs> or meeting yeah. you, Owen and Craig. Speaking virtually. It was fun. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome.
All right. Talk to you all later. Good night. Good night. All right. Bye-bye.